Are you wandering in the wilderness? Or are you a voice in the wilderness? Welcome to the Revival Cry podcast. This is your host, Eric Miller. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The goal of this podcast is to encourage you to use the voice God has given you to make Jesus famous. Every week, we will share principles from the Word of God, interviews, and encouragement in order to strengthen your voice. Thank you for joining me today, and now here is today's podcast. Well, I want to talk to you about accepting our priestly prayer posture. Accepting our priestly prayer posture. How many of you know that Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer? Right? We know that. And you know, everybody quotes, you can go to the next slide, everybody quotes the scripture in John 14, 12. You'll be able to do the things I've done, right? Even greater. We love to quote that because when we quote that, most of what we're referring to is what Jesus did during his three and a half years of ministry. You know, Jesus lived for probably about 33 years, and really it was only about three, three and a half years where he was working miracles, healing the sick. We don't know of anything prior to that except him honoring and living as we all grew up living in a very simple lifestyle. And yet, when people say, I want to do the things that Jesus did, what we mean is we want to lay hands on the sick, right? We want to see them heal. We want to see miracles. We want to see, you know, money come out of the mouth of fish, right? <laughs> we want to see the dead raised. How, who wants to see those things? Amen? Okay, three or four people, but... <laughs> No, I think the majority of us want to see that because we know we don't serve a dead God. Jesus is alive. And he still is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't believe that he has finished working miracles and healing and baptizing people in the Holy Spirit and, and doing supernatural works and events and I want to do those things. And I've seen the Lord do some of those things. But what Jesus has been doing for the last 2,000 years, yes, he still works miracles and healing and all of those things. He has positioned himself. He has been positioned by his Father in a posture of prayer and intercession. He has been sitting at the right hand of the Father, living to make intercession for us. So we should not only want to look like what Jesus did before, we should want to look like what Jesus is doing now. And if he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, then how much more should we value prayer? Because that's what Jesus does 24-7. Amen. Oh, it's easy to get excited when you can go and see somebody get healed and pray for them. And God uses you. He partners with you. Obviously, he gets all the glory, honor, and praise for whatever type of miracle or healing takes place. But often what we do in prayer, nobody sees what we do. It's not in front of the crowds. It's not popular. You know, Leonard Ravenhill famously said that a Sunday morning church, you could see how popular the past or, or the church is, right? A Sunday night service, you could see how popular the pastor is. Wednesday night, you could see how popular the ministries of the church is. And the Saturday morning prayer meeting, you could see how popular God is. It's a little different, right? Look, I understand there's the kingdom of God is multifaceted. It's 
it, there's so many layers to it. There's so many things. God's not just focusing on prayer. He's not just focusing on evangelism. He's not just focusing on church community. Or uh, There's so many things he's focusing on. But one thing he definitely wants us to prioritize in the church is understanding that we should pray for Israel to be saved. And if we don't pray, Israel is not going to be interested in our healing and our miracles. If they were, they would have repented a long ago when Jesus himself was here. Sure, I'm not saying miracles and healing won't convince people, but so much of the church has been so hypocritical before Israel and has persecuted the Jews in church history. Look at Dr. Michael Brown's book called Our Hands Are Stained with Blood. And it's the history of how the church has unfortunately not treated Israel very well. And I'm not going to get into all that, but when they hear that the church is burdened and praying, I believe it will do something in their heart to say, okay, we might not agree with everything that they're saying, but prayer is not popular. And when people pray and are still committed, look how committed the Jewish people are, despite not even having a temple, but they go to the wall every single day and sit there and praying that God would hear them and answer them and rebuild the temple. Friend, they don't even have Messiah. And yet, they have a focus on prayer that we in the church who have the Messiah should have. Even greater. And I don't say these things in a condemning way. I say this in the closing of this convocation that... I want to encourage our hearts to be stirred to prayer today. You know, the theme of God Bless Israel Convocation has been the royal high priesthood of Yeshua. And all of our teachers, I think, have done a fabulous job of biblically defining to us who and what the high priest was in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And I would like to focus on what are the high priestly duties Jesus is presently fulfilling for Israel, his church, and the nations. Number one, I believe Jesus is our high priest because he has made atonement for our sins. Amen? We've heard a lot on all of this, but just as the blood of the sin offering and the sacrificial scapegoat removed the sin from the community on the Day of Atonement, our high priest, Jesus, removes our sin through the blood that he shed. How many of you are thankful for the blood of Jesus? Amen. Amen. Number two, Jesus is our high priest because he has served as mediator between God and men. We believe that because Jesus is our high priest, we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. There's never a moment if you have walked through the blood of Jesus and been what we call born again or born from above, then you understand that you have a right to come into the most holy place with God. You don't have to go through a priest anymore. You, there's one high priest that has already prepared the way. And again, we've heard so much on this, but he has served as our mediator. We could stop whatever we're doing at any point of the day and enter in to the holy place because he has prepared the way for us. Amen. Number three, Jesus is our high priest because he was fully God and fully man and he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. He was made like us, fully human in every way, in order that, we, that he might become merciful and faithful 
high priest to the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He himself suffered when he was tempted. He was able to help those who were being tempted, right? Hebrews 2, 17. He is a compassionate God. He was a compassionate God in the Old Testament. That's why he warned us of the coming of the Messiah. He was trying to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And he came to his own, but his own did not recognize him. And yet, in his continued mercy and being tempted by our idolatry and our figuring out things in our own way, he still says, okay, Paul, go to the Gentiles. And Gentiles make Israel jealous because he is so committed to the salvation of every man, woman, and child, beginning with the Jew first and then to the Gentile. God will never go back on his promises. He wants us to understand this posture of prayer that he carries. I believe although Jesus carried the weight and the sin and the judgment and the wrath of God upon himself, upon the cross, and he died and said, Father, forgive them, and he rose again, that he still carries a burden on his heart not a burden that he hasn't already provided the necessary uh, retribution for and healing and restoration, but a burden of saying, would you join with me in prayer? Would you believe with me if we can be together as two or three and agree for the lostness of mankind? You know, Pastor Al said it so eloquently today, you know, that we are saved, you know, we're being saved, and we will be saved, right? We are... Uh, we've been justified, we're being sanctified, and one day... It'll be all fied, right? <laughs> Purified. It'll be done. And we'll be totally saved. We'll not have to worry about being tempted anymore. But while we are in this world, Jesus said we will still have trouble. If we remember to take heart that he's overcome the world, then our position and posture of our heart and mind before God should always be in a place of communion with God. You know, somebody asked Smith Wigglesworth, the great healing evangelist, one day, they call him, many people would call him the apostle of faith because he talked about faith so much and had such revelation on it. And they said, Smith, how much do you pray? And he said, I never go more than a half hour of praying, and I never pray less than a half hour. <laughs> what he is saying is, yeah, I have my secret time with the Lord, but I never lose communion with him. I'm constantly praying and being aware of who he is and fixing my eyes upon him. You know, Keith Green wrote a famous song called Make My Life a Prayer to You. You know, the type of intercession that God's calling us to is not only a closet, but it's a posture before the Lord that we carry with the Lord, recognizing him and his high priestly duties and responsibility that we join with him in intercession and we carry within us the weight of the burden of the Lord, not the way he feels it, but in a way that is of uh, understandable for you and I to where it doesn't overwhelm us, condemn us. God shares with us part of his burden so that we would stay interactive with wanting to pray and intercede, win the loss, and make disciples. Number four, Jesus is our high priest because his sacrifice on the cross fulfilled the requirements of the sacrificial system, the Mosaic law, and the words of the prophet all for, for once and for all. He not only fulfilled the law, but just like Melchizedek, that Pastor uh, Al talked about today, he is a priest for all people, not just the descendants of Israel. His sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, established a new covenant for eternity so that no other sacrifices are needed ever again. Praise the Lord. 
These are the things, and there's probably more that we could list. But I want us to focus on what motivates Jesus to pray. What, what it motivates him? You know, yes, he looks at a dying, sin-filled world every day, and he knows everybody by name, and he knows the number of hairs on our head, and he sees not just nations, but individual people. And he's brokenhearted about the destruction of marriages and families and abuse and famines and wars and the things that are happening that are trafficking around the world. God hates these things. But it's not like he just says, well, I hate it and I hope that you all work it out. No, he has positioned himself in a place of prayer. And if, imagine what life would be like if Jesus wasn't praying for us. You know, understanding what Jesus has done and what he is doing as our high priest mirrors how you and I can follow his example as we are a kingdom of priests. When I was in uh, Brownsville Revival School of Ministry, I know some of you know about the Pensacola Revival. We were a part of that. Uh, it started in June of 1995 and lasted for about five years or so. And in that period of time, you know, there was no social media, but people through word of mouth and some of you remember VHS tapes, remember those? <laughs> you know, they went around the world. And in five years, about four and a half million people came through the doors of that church in Pensacola. Now, Pensacola is a small town. It's, it's maybe... A few hundred thousand, three hundred thousand people, it's not very big. You would think if God's going to send revival, why don't you send it to Los Angeles? Why don't you send it to New York City, right? Or Manila or something. And I believe God wants to do that. But why doesn't God move in some places? I think because he's not finding anybody who's really interested to become a house of prayer. A people that he can pour out his spirit upon. Remember, before the believers experienced Pentecost in the upper room, they were told to go function as a house of prayer. They were told that you must go to Jerusalem. And they, there were all these specific details about finding a place where they were supposed to wait upon the Lord. This had never happened in history, so they didn't really know what to completely expect but I believe they went there after seeing Jesus risen from the dead. And as they waited in the upper room, the 120, we know that the Spirit of God began to move. And God, throughout any revival history, always moves on the heels of a prayer movement. You cannot separate prayer from revival. You cannot separate a move of God from God empowering and encouraging his people with a spirit of prayer. You know, when I was in Bible school, we would have a brother named Bob Weiner who would come and speak from, I believe it was Maranatha Ministries, and he was well known in the 70s and, you know, college campuses, seeing God move all over the world. And he would ask us, and he's a... a a Jewish brother in the Lord, and he would ask us, and he would say, who in here are full-time ministers? And maybe a few people would raise their hands. Now, there were 1,200, 1,200 students in the school of ministry. So many people were getting saved in the revival. The, really, the, the real reason why they started the school ministry is because they needed to make disciples. People didn't know what they believed. They were getting saved out of religion, out of drugs, out of prostitution, out of all kinds of garbage, and getting saved and realizing that, you know, Jesus didn't save us to just go to church. He saved us to be the church. And so when, when these people get saved, they needed discipleship. And so the school started actually with 120 students. And within one year, they went from 120 to 1,200. Because so many people are getting saved. You see, revival is not something that you and I can control and make happen. 
It's like a typhoon. When it comes, it's going to do what it's going to do. <laughs> and yet, we can position and posture ourselves before God to say, you're the one in control. You're the one who sends revival, sustains revival, and turns revival into whatever type of missions movement to raise up laborers and send them out locally and abroad. And so when we're in this place, and I started to realize that according to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to go there in just a moment, that we are all full-time ministers. You, maybe you don't get paid to be a pastor of a church. Maybe you don't receive a salary. But if you're born again, you are part of the priesthood of all believers. You know, God first called Israel to become a kingdom of priests. In Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6, it says, Then Moses went up to God on Mount Sinai, right? And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. This is God sharing his vision. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. How I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. In other words, you have seen how I saved you. How I saved you from destruction. How I saved you from being separated from me for, uh, from, from me in eternity and being with me. I saved you myself. Verse 5, now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He's not just speaking to the Levites. He's prophesying something that he knows is going to happen on the day of Pentecost. Because on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, God fulfilled, what is it, Numbers 11. I wish that all of God's people would prophesy, right? God, in Acts chapter 2, Joel 2 says it, Acts 2 says it, that in the last days, God says, I'll pour my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon everyone. So who has the right to prophesy? Anybody who's been encountering the blood of Jesus. Does that make everybody a prophet? No. But it gives us an ability to hear from God and speak what we feel like God is saying to us without having to go through some other leader. Amen. Amen. You have a right to go into the most holy place. You have a right to hear God's voice for yourself. You have a right to read and interpret scripture on your own. And the Holy Spirit says he will be your teacher. Now, obviously, God gives us leaders to help us understand what it is. I know when I'm listening to Pastor Al, he's on a different level than I am when he's talking about, you know, the, the high priests and, and, and the tabernacle and all these amazing details. And I'm going, whoa, I never heard that. I never understood that before. But there's a reason why God's given him leadership. It's so that what we're reading and learning, we can say, hey, Pastor Al, what do you think about this? Pastor Deepak, what do you think about this? Pastor June, what do you think about these things? I want to know Christ. I want to not just know about God. I don't want just information. I want to know how to position my life and posture my life before the Lord. Prayer is not just an action that we do. It's an understanding that we have, that we possess position ourselves before the Lord and we feel his heart and we groan and we cry out deep cries out to deep and we say Lord there's something you want to do that's on your heart show me give me your heart especially for your people Israel 
You know, after Jesus fulfilled the law and the words of the prophets for us, he restored, number one, Israel's calling to be a kingdom of priests and grafted in the Gentiles to also be a part of this kingdom of priests. In 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, it says, As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, say you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, for in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone, a stone. You see that stone? I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What is the cornerstone? It's the very first stone that's set in place when a foundation is being laid from a building. Any construction workers in here? You know, you lay that cornerstone, then you know what direction to lay the rest of the foundation. And the cornerstone is hidden, right? And you build off of the cornerstone and that foundation. And the stone, verse 8, that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Verse 9, but you are a chosen people. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile, we're grafted in. You're a royal priesthood. So who in here is a full-time minister? Okay, some of you are still not convinced. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Pastor Al talked about today the menorah and how it is shining the light in a specific direction to evangelize those living in darkness. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. According to 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, how can we accept our priestly prayer posture? Well, number one, we need to live like the kingdom of priests that we were chosen to be. You need to see your identity as, if you're born again, as a priest of one of many millions of priests that are around the world. I'm not talking about a Catholic priest. I'm not talking about a pastor of a church. I'm not talking about any of the five-fold ministry gifts, although they are part of that priesthood of all believers. But I believe those gifts are more foundational gifts to help build the building. That, you know, the purpose of leadership is not to control people. The purpose of leadership, Jesus said, the greatest among you shall become servant to all. See, we're used to this type of leadership where we have the leader on top and he tells everybody what to do, right? But in the kingdom, Jesus flipped that upside down and said, if you want to be great, my kingdom becomes servant of all. And as you serve the people, we equip them for ministry so that they can become a part of this building that God is establishing in this world. Amen. We need to live like the kingdom of priests that we are chosen to be. If you were chosen to do something and you didn't fulfill it, it would be a waste. Amen. 
What if somebody chose you and said, I want to give you uh, 20 million pesos. And you said, meet, and they said, meet me in the front of, let's say, Victoria Plaza and bring with you a vehicle that you can put all the cash inside and be there at 8 a.m. I am pretty sure that most of us would not even sleep we would have probably 10 alarms on our phone. We would have accountability partners. Help me to make sure that I'm there. Well, do you know that you have some, been given something better than money? You have been chosen as a royal kingdom of priests to represent the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so many people do not recognize who they are in Christ, and yet they don't believe what God said about them that they were chosen so there's no sense of responsibility to be a man or a woman of prayer I feel like I'll leave that up for my leaders but see maturity is not coming to church and just listening a message maturity is taking what you learn and applying it at home and applying it in your workplace, applying it in your time, applying it to your finances, applying it to everything that you do, that the kingdom of heaven becomes your central focus. Number two, we need to live like living stones within the local body of Christ that we're called to. Living stones being placed on one another and fitted together. You know, you hear a lot of people nowadays say, you know, it's, it's me and Jesus. That's what a lot of people thought about in COVID because they wondered why they couldn't come together as a church. And even when they did come together as a church, their churches weren't very tight. You know, just because we're all in the same building on a Sunday morning doesn't necessarily mean we have community. Right? You know, you, you hear about couples who are married, but they sleep in two different beds and two different rooms. That's, that's not marriage, my friend. That's not the way God designed it, right? Hello? No, no. There should be a sense of communion. There should be a sense of agreement and unity. You know why we don't have unity in the church is because we're easily offended. And it's, it's easy to be offended with each other when we're not living as a house of prayer. It's, I think Pastor Dong or someone said it before, that when we're praying for each other, it's harder to be offended by each other. <laughs> when we pray, when we fast, when we seek the Lord and call upon His name, when we cry out to Him for the things that are on His heart and we carry the groanings of the Lord in intercession, we begin to bear some of the weight of responsibility that Jesus gave us at the Great Commission. Go make disciples. You can't make disciples without being a people of prayer. Just giving people information. We have fire school and ministry. I don't want anybody in our school to come to our school and just get information and then think that they're God's gift to mankind. <laughs> no. They're going to go through challenges. They got to learn how to pay their school bill, right? They got to learn how to drive an hour and a half one way like our brother does here every week. You know, they got to learn how to balance family and, and their time at the school and challenges. They got to learn how to deal with hardship and their own identity issues. And in the process of doing that all, they will become men and women of prayer. We're not just here to make famous celebrity preachers. I could care less about that. Uh, again, Leonard Ravenhill told Steve Hill one day, I don't care if you're known from coast to coast. He says, I want to know one thing. Are you known in hell? Does the devil wake up in the morning and think, oh no, Rose is up again. <laughs> She's such a problem to my kingdom. You see, we don't think like that. You know why? Because our prayer lives make us think outside the box of our little life. It makes us see into the heavenlies. It makes us see things that we wouldn't see by our own ability. It makes us recognize that we're not in a physical battle only. It's a spiritual battle. 
It makes us depend on the Lord. It makes us lean on him. It causes us to think differently so that when we do pray, we recognize that we have power and we have authority. That we pray and God hears us. That we don't stop praying. That we don't stop believing. That we keep pursuing. You see, this is why the church oftentimes doesn't pray. And I'm asking God to give us a spirit of prayer. To give us his heart for his presence. That we would value what he has done for us and set the standards that he has before us as high priests. And we would see ourselves as priests of the Lord that he has anointed and called and chosen and set apart for such a time as this to cry out from earth and say, our father which is in heaven, right? Holy is your name. Let your kingdom come and devour city on earth as it is in heaven. God not only hears leaders. He not only hears big loud preachers from New York. That's where I'm from. He, he doesn't. He hears very simple people. In fact, people that believe him and nobody might know about might be the ones that receive the greatest rewards in heaven. Simply because they take God at his word and they say, I understand who I'm supposed to be as a man or a woman of prayer. Number three, we need to live like priests who offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We need to give ourselves over. Ministry is tiring. I want to tell you, I, I, this is my third time to the United States in the past year. I've never gone that many times in one year. We've been to Japan. I've been to Italy. I don't, I don't even know where I'm at right now. <laughs> you, you know, we've been so busy and traveling and going to places. I got a daughter who's a missionary in Japan. I got another daughter who's going to college in Florida. Another son who just started college in August. And you say, how, do you, how can you pay for all those kids to go to college? I'm not. God's paying for it. Because <laughs> all three of them have gotten full scholarships. And some of the schools that they're going to cost $100,000. $100,000. When I heard that, I, and my son or my daughter said, this is the school God told me to go to, I'd say, are you sure you heard from God? <laughs> <laughs> but see, we look at these things and we recognize that not only have we chosen to have a family altar at home to be a house of prayer, to be living for the Lord and teaching our kids how to hear the voice of God. But now we see our kids hearing from God and they're watching God provide testimonies in their lives. And as God prepares them for what he's called them to do, as he fits them in place on the foundation stone that we've laid, that Jesus has laid in their life, we believe our kids are going to experience our ceiling will become their floor. That's what I want. You know the reason why we make ourselves living sacrifices and go hard after Jesus and, and don't waste time and, and just give in to all kinds of foolishness that this world is offering because, friend, I do not want to stand before God one day and say, I wish I went a little harder for you. And it's not about just going hard. Hear my heart. I go hard because I'm in love with him. It's not like I'm trying to prove anything to anybody. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I used to care what everybody else thought. And then I got set free from myself and set free from what other people thought. And now I serve the Lord because I recognize what Jesus did. Nobody else could have done. So I might as well give everything for him. Amen. We need to live like priests who do not allow shame to be our identity. A lot of people serve God out of shame. You know why people don't pray sometimes? It's because they feel guilty. They don't feel like they have a right to come into the secret place of the Most High. But friend, Jesus shed blood so that you could come anytime. And I promise you, the more you go into that secret place with the Lord... And you meet with him and you hear him and you encounter him and he speaks to you and he speaks in dreams and visions and he provides supernatural events and outcomes to your circumstances. The more convinced and the more addicted you will become to that place of prayer. 
but it's a place of renewing our mind over and over and over again. This is why I think we don't see the revival that God wants to pour out. I've always had in my mind an image that God is holding his hand cup like this with revival in it. Like a, a, a liquid he's just holding there. And he's just looking on the ground. Who can I pour out my spirit upon? Because Jesus already shed his blood. He wants to pour it out. He doesn't want nations to die and go to hell. He doesn't want Muslims to die and go to hell. He doesn't want Hindus to die and go to hell. He wants all people to be saved. But why aren't they being saved? It's not because of the fault of the sinner. It's because the church is not a house of prayer. It's because the church is so in agreement with finding another way to fulfill God's purposes that God will wait on us until we turn our head north and we say, it's not about us anymore. We're going to do it your way. We want to do it the way that Jesus has been doing it the last 2,000 years. We need to live like Jesus is the only high priest we submit to and do not stumble over. <laughs> you know, I've heard of pastors calling themselves different titles <laughs> high priests and I'm just going to tell you we need to be real careful we need to be real careful who we take the glory from you know I like what it says in Isaiah I think it's Isaiah 58 where it says the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard I can't always watch my back my eyes are in the front of my head and I'm so, I don't know about you, but I could have just tunnel vision sometimes where I don't see everything happening around me. So if I make life about Eric Miller, then I forget that when something's trying to come up behind me and take me out, I'm sure happy when the glory of the Lord is my rear guard. Amen? We need to live like we know our identity and our calling. Do you know who you are? As a son, as a daughter. Do you know who you are and where God has fitted you in his body? Look, if I told you the amount of horror stories that uh, I've experienced and I'm sure other brothers in the Lord could talk about in the local church, there's so many reasons of why people give up in church a lot of times. We don't like what people say. We don't like what people do. We get divided over very foolish things. But here's the deal. We're all sinners that need a savior. And when we become satisfied with the Lord in a place of prayer and being able to hear from him ourselves, then we won't put expectations upon others that can never fulfill, they can never fulfill for us. We will never hold people to a higher standard than what we are willing to do ourselves. You see, Jesus is the standard. And none of us are ever going to be exactly where he is. That's why we lean into him. That's why we pray. That's why we seek him. That's why we don't stop pursuing him. That's why we don't lag behind when the Lord is walking forward. That's why we keep in step with the Spirit. The more we do that, the more we carry God's heart and understand who we are and what he's called us to do. And the last two, we need to live like Jesus deserves all of the praise. We need to wake up in the morning let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Lord, I thank you that I have breath today, that I slept well, that I woke up today, and that I can thank you for another day. Thank you for my wife, for my children. Lord, for these students at fire school. Thank you, God, for Pastor Al, Pastor Deepak, Pastor Dong. Thank you, God, for men and women of God that are serving you and loving you. Thank you for missionaries, God. Thank you, God, for divine health. Thank you for provision. Oh, my friend, that's part of the maturity of a believer is to figure out how much we actually have to depend on the Lord. And when we see him constantly come through, we say, I have no other option but to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. And most of all, I think we need to live like we've received mercy.
Mercy. Who needed mercy? <laughs> yeah. At least you know more that you needed mercy than maybe knowing you're a full-time minister, okay? That's a good start. But it's true. We can't understand what God's called us to do until we understand the price that he paid for us. And when we realize this amazing grace that he has provided for us, this great mercy, it makes us be motivated to serve the Lord, to seek him and not give up. So, you might be wondering, <laughs> what is this? This heavy brick, there's still dust and dirt all over it. So back in May, my family went to the U.S. because we had to help my son Jonathan get established before he would start college in August. I didn't really want to go because we just finally got back at the end of November last year. So um, I just wanted to be here. <laughs> and yet we had to go. And right before we went, I had heard that the Brownsville Revival School of Ministry building that was there for many, many, many years was that property was bought out and it was going to be demolished. And on the property itself was a prayer chapel. And it was just a small chapel. It was probably, you know, imagine if this top half circle of this platform went all the way around. That was about the size of the chapel. You could probably get maybe seven, eight people in there to pray at a time. But that prayer chapel was prayed in by hundreds and thousands of people. It was a very anointed place. You know, I mean, God doesn't dwell in temples made by men, but he, he, he dwells in the heart of people. But when those people who are full of the God are spending time in the same place, I think there's a little residue. <laughs> a buddy of mine who pastors a church two hours away from Pensacola, I said, hey man, I heard the chapel's going to be destroyed. I said, and he has a good amount of property that his church is on. I said, I, I just thought to ask you, what would you think about going to see if they would allow you to take the prayer chapel and bring it to your property? He goes, that's an excellent idea. Do you know who to talk to? And I said, I really don't, but I'll see if I can find out. Well, I couldn't find out anything. We we're traveling. And then the next thing I hear is that it was demolished. And without knowing what I asked my pastor friend to do, my mother-in-law, Kathy Simpson, Casey's mom, heard that the chapel was being destroyed. And they live maybe just three or four miles from that chapel in Pensacola, Florida. So she had this desire to go look. And she saw that the prayer chapel was demolished. But there was some foundational stones that were there. And she grabbed some for me. And she said, I don't know if you care about this or not. But she said, there's a foundation stone here from the prayer chapel. And I thought you might like to have it. From, I mean, there's so much history there, you know. And I was overwhelmed. So she gave me several stones. And I actually sent them through the mail I sent bricks in the mail <laughs> to six other friends who lead houses of prayer. And I said, look, because this whole burden of understanding for the last 2,000 years that Jesus has been in a posture of prayer has been on me for a long time. And I have said to them, look, this is just a brick, but I want you to remember what the Lord has done. I want you to remember the wonders of the Lord. I want you to remember the answered prayers, the crying out, the hours, the night and day prayer meetings that we used to have in that prayer chapel. I want you to remember the thousands and millions of people that came through the doors of that church because people cried out to God and got real hungry and thirsty. And I brought one with me to the Philippines. Not because of just a sentimental value. But I want to put this in my office and remind myself 
that there was a day that God poured out his spirit in a place and it was so spectacular that millions of people were impacted by it. Millions. Friend, there's maybe two million people here in Deval, maybe more or less, I'm not really sure. And there's so many people that still don't know Jesus. There's so many people in Mindanao who don't know the Lord. There's so many people that are bound up in sin and religion. And we've been missionaries here now for 20 years. And I, I feel like my burden for revival has only increased. I haven't been a part of the Brownsville revival since 2000. When it basically ended. And yet we came here three years after that revival with the sense of God is going to pour out his spirit in Davao City. And it's never left me. In fact, I, I cry out to God oftentimes in worship and praying and saying, Lord, I want revival. And I don't care how I'm involved with it. I just want you to do it. I really don't. You know what my desire is? To see some of these Filipino students take what we've given them and take what these other leaders are giving them and they run with it and they start to build an altar of prayer. They begin to cry out to God in their day and age and our ceiling becomes their floor and they start to press in and go after God and they see a harvest that is established not only here in the Philippines but also in the nations. Filipinos are spread out everywhere in the world. I, when I first went to Italy in 2017, I think it was, I was invited to share at a school of ministry there. And when I left to come back, I had like one or two nights in Rome. And so I wanted to go to the Colosseum to go honor all those Christian martyrs. And I go uh, and I get off the plane from Sicily to Rome and I and they said, take this train to go into the old city of Rome. It was like a 30, 40 minute ride. And then I get out and I'm like, where do I go from here? I have no idea where I'm going to go. I come out of the train tunnel and I walk up. There's a Filipino lady sitting right in front of me. It says, in Rome. Filipinos are everywhere. I go, excuse me. I said, are you Filipino? And she was so happy that I recognized she was Filipino. I didn't think she was something else. <laughs> she goes, yes. I said, oh, that's awesome. I'm trying to find this location here. And she goes, oh, just go out of here and go there and blah, blah, blah. I go, where are you from? She says, I'm from Davao City. I said, Davao City? I said, really? I said, I'm from Davao. I said, I've, I've lived there all these years. She goes, I live in Buhonging. I said, I live in Buhangi. <laughs> At that time, we did. The Lord knows how to order our steps. He knows how to open up doors and close doors. There's so many stories I can tell you. After two and a half years of not being able to be here, we asked the Lord, I said, Lord, do you want us to go back to the Philippines? because it doesn't seem like the door is opening. <laughs> and it was frustrating, because we wanted to be here. My kids are just white Filipinos. They are, they eat bulad. <laughs> I hate bulad. My son loves durian. I don't. <laughs> there is a lot that I do love here. But it's like, Lord, we've been here for all these years. Why would we not go back? And then supernaturally, he opened the doors up. Provided the funds. And we come back here. And when I was flying in the devout city, which I've done, I can't tell you how many times. I was listening to an old revival song. And I remember 
being on the ground here when I first moved here and said, Lord, would you move in revival? I remember climbing Mount Apple once with my daughter and some other missionaries, and I didn't really want to do it. <laughs> but there was one reason why I wanted to do it. Not only for my daughter, but to go to the top of Mount Apple, the highest point in the Philippines, and lift my hands and say, pour out your spirit in the Philippines, Lord. Sem revival. Pour out your spirit, Jesus. 2016, my wife and I had the joy and honor of going to Israel. And I brought with me a Filipino flag. And we went to the wall. And I know that the blue should be on the other side. So I've heard this a million times. You don't have to tell me again. It actually means with the red on that side and me facing it, that the nation is in war. <laughs> but when I put that picture online, it was shared almost 200 times. And uh, like several hundred likes. And I felt like it really struck a chord that Filipinos would see an American is valuing them and taking them with him on his trip to Israel because I want to pray from Israel for revival for the Philippines. And I, maybe the Philippines should be in a posture of prayer, a warring for Israel to be saved. Amen? Here's Jerusalem in the middle. Here's one of our meetings with Pastor Al, Mari Kaimo, some other of our missionaries. Who else is there? Uh, Dr. Brown, I think. Is that Dr. Brown? Scott? Yeah. Yeah, and Scott Volk. And then we have up here, we got this guy, Paul Wilbur. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. And I'm, I'm photobombing Pauline and John Valdez. Do you know what this house is here? It's the house of Corey Timboom, the hiding place. I've been to the Netherlands at least three or four times, and every time I go there, I tell them, every time I visit your nation, I have to go there. Because that's the type of heart that I want to have to Israel. Someone who paid such a horrible price because she loved Israel. And then this young lady in the middle, Pastor Deepak knows who she is. <laughs> Her name's Liel. Young lady from Israel who ended up giving her heart to Jesus here in Davao City. And it was, I think to all of us, a sign that the Lord, when, when we say to the Lord that we believe that salvation is to the Jew first and the Gentile, I asked the Lord that in 2016, I was telling Pastor Al this earlier, I said, we didn't, we didn't ever met until 2016, which is, in, which is crazy. But I said to him, you know, in that whole year, I couldn't get that scripture in Romans out of my mind that the gospel to the Jew first and the Gentile. And we've been under the teaching, training, discipleship of Dr. Michael Brown for many, many, many years up to that point. It's not like we didn't love Israel. But there was something that God did in us in 2016. And I said, okay, Lord, if the gospel's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, I said, how am I going to win Jewish people to you here if I live in Davao City? That's what I said. We had somebody bless my wife and I with the ability to go to Israel at the end of 2016, the last week of November, first week of December. And the week before we left, we're walking through Abriza Mall, and we're about to turn the corner where there was a, a store there that was selling all these cosmetic uh, lotions and things like that from Israel. Dead Sea products. Yeah, Dead Sea products. And this young lady steps out and goes, Hi, where are you from? And honestly, I wasn't interested because I'm thinking they're trying to, she's trying to sell us something. But she was actually interested with connecting with foreigners. And so we connected with her and we found out that she was from Israel. A week before we go to Israel, 
I meet the first Jewish person I ever met outside of my wife <laughs> in Davao City after being here all these years. So I took notice of that. <laughs> then we come back and Hanukkah coincided the first time in 40 years with Christmas that year. She ends up moving in to our house to live with us for a while and Pastor Deepak is pouring into her, Pastor Al and, and, and some others as well, George, Brother George and his wife, or uh, others are helping and we're talking every day about Jesus and I'm talking about the Lord giving us a burden in prayer for Israel and him bringing to your doorstep somebody that you could share the gospel with that is directly from there. And watching her give her heart to the Lord, it was spectacular. And as we close out this convocation, I can't think of a better way than for us to walk away and asking the Lord to give us a spirit of prayer. Father, just lift your hands with me. We ask that you would give us a spirit of prayer. We ask that you would give us a spirit of prayer for your people. That you would break our hearts with the things that break your heart. Thank you for listening to Revival Cry with Eric Miller. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review for this podcast on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more or partner with our missions work around the world, please visit us at revivalcry.org. I look forward to being with you next week.